0: everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast, where each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. And during the first two weeks, the first 10 episodes or 10 minutes of the movie, we have been your hosts. We are the hosts of The Wilder Ride. I'm Alan Sanders. I am Walt Murray. And Walt, we are already at minute number seven. It's moving fast, isn't it? Well, we're in the plane now. We're in the cockpit. We're seeing America fly by underneath, getting a good old-fashioned look at the U.S. of A.
1: Well, and for one of our characters, a totally different reason to be looking out those windows.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, this episode, I think, is going to be tentatively uh, titled, A Lot of Time on My Knees. And it's going to really relate to how they're all kind of hovered together here, almost almost like a triumvirate of individuals overlooking the world below from on high talking about prayer.
1: Yeah. And I, I really love this scene for a lot of reasons, but I I love the fact that this machine that was built as a weapon of war is now carrying the, the victors home. And, yeah. Uh, that is a really amazing view for them to see as they go. and, uh, the you know the guns gone the the uh, bomb site has gone and they're headed home.
0: Yeah, and, and when you think about it, and the, it, we talked yesterday extensively, and it probably was the, the reason the episode was a lot longer about the layout of the B seventeen. And I'd encourage anybody who's been interested in this film and talking about what what's going on to just there's so much information available. You could very quickly do some virtual tours of a B seventeen. You can look at YouTube videos or just go to websites, but it's a really cool plane. And these guys started off all the way in the back if we had had footage of them, you know, according to the story wise. And now they're at the very nose underneath the flight deck where they're sort of just kind of hunched over and watching the landscape literally through the foremost portion of the plane.
1: Yeah, they're literally looking at the fruited
0: planes. In fact, the way we're seeing the scene shot, it looks like we're definitely over midwestern farmland. Yeah, isn't that great? It's awesome. Such a such a an um like a, a stereotypical like if you were going to say, well, let's just do a shot that lets you think we're back to America. We're 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 flying over the heartland, you know. Um, and this has that feel to it in the background. Now, I don't know where they shot the aerials. They are flying along a highway, and you see kind of the the the, the cut up squared segments of land and trees growing along edges, larger trees dotting the landscape. Uh s- sense of some smaller uh maintained or ploughed fields even. You get a you see the um the troughs uh, all up and down where they've been it looks like ploughed ready for planting. And so it's kind of a a cool shot that just says, "Hey, we're not over a big city, we're not over a desert or a jungle, we're over middle America."
1: That's right. And this probably was California. Um probably Right outside of Los Angeles, but uh, at that time it was mostly farmland.
0: I wonder where they would have got the footage because they it would it like I said, they could have had anybody fly to get the uh the the uh B roll that they're using to kind of make it look like they've been flying over over uh over land. But you know, the B seventeen they shot, that was an actual B seventeen taking off. I don't know if that was just stock footage or if they shot from an airbase. But uh yeah I guess it could have been anywhere that just has sort of that middle America look to it.
1: I was going to say it's America. It's just America. And you know it when you look at it that it's America.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I I can't disagree. I mean, I don't I'm sure other places you could say well if you flew over yeah, but for some reason, you know, if you if you if you went over a little kind of Grecian village, it would have that feel. And you're like, okay, that's not America. And if you were over in an Italian village, you'd be like, no, but this has that feeling of wider spaces. And you know, it's what America's known for the big wide open spaces and people not living on top of one another, unless you're in a big city.
1: Right. And they could have flown by the Statue of Liberty or something like that, but it would have been
0: too much. Mm-hmm. No, I like this because it's about going back to home, not not some giant city necessarily. It's about going to kind of the 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 everyman home, like you mentioned. They they probably called it Boone so everyone could identify with it. Well, I feel like yes, there are some people who live in cities, but I just feel like at this time in America, that was so much of where the vast majority of our fighting forces were were from. were from farmland, from the Midwest, and from I mean they were from all over, but it just this feels like America.
1: Yes, it absolutely does.
0: So. In the minute, we continue the conversation from where we were yesterday. If you remember, uh, Homer's last line was, boy, oh, boy, look at that. Look at those automobiles. And we continue with him still looking out the window. And and then he continues to say, you can see them so plain. You can even see the people in them, talking about people driving in the cars, uh, looking at that highway. <laughs> and then Fred, who's probably used to running bombing missions a little bit higher, <laughs> to avoid guns and being shot yes. at. <laughs> yep. Uh, goes, yeah,
1: it goes, "Looks like we're flying by a road map."
0: Like, I don't know where we're going. We'll follow the highway. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, just find uh find I-16 and keep on going.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> just wouldn't it be easier if we just kind of flew straight to our distance? I have no idea where we go once we lose the road. We're gotta keep. we just going to keep turning wherever the road takes us. Yeah, just keep on rolling. <laughs> keep on trucking. I think that's funny. Uh, but I wonder how many maybe inexperienced or pilots that were trying to stay out of maybe uh, the, the air traffic lanes, if that's the reason why we're so low, might have uh, relied on local roadways like that as sort of their landmarks to get from point A to point B.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, if you fly a helicopter like around Los Angeles, um, I've watched a, a bunch of videos by a guy who just goes out and films. People say, hey, could you fly over Disney World or fly over whatever, and particularly during COVID, where everything shut down? It's like a, um, a ghost town. So, And he fl- has flown out over all the ships out in the, in the port. Uh, he has to fly the interstates. And so they, you know, they basically keep him on air traffic control, flying interstate to interstate.
0: Wow, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of cool.
0: Continuing the scene, then, uh, Fred then can tell how much he's smiling and and seems really really excited. Is this your first ride in one of these things? And we then we learn what we surmised from his expression yesterday, Walt. Yeah, this is my first plane ride. And then we get just a little bit of a background as to where he was when he served. Because then he turns around and says, I saw plenty of flying, all right. I was on a CV. That's a flat top. That's a flat top. You know what that means, right?
1: Yep. He was on an aircraft carrier.
0: Aircraft carrier. Yes, sir. Uh, In fact, I did want to get into that designation for just a second because being in the Navy myself, Navy carriers intended to operate with the main fleet were numbered in the CV series, the C meaning cruiser or group of designators. Um, They were originally AVGs. That's what they were going to be called, aircraft escort vessels. Then they were going to be called ACVs, auxiliary aircraft carriers. And then they were finally termed CVEs, and then just dropped the E for just the CVs, the escort aircraft carrier. And so they are still to this day part of the carrier group. If you just see a CV by itself on any of the ship designations, that is a regular standard diesel-operated ship. And if you have an N, like a CVN, that would be a nuclear-powered vessel. Interesting. Okay, so that gives you a a little bit of a background into a CV, a flat top. This guy, and that must mean he certainly saw time. Could have been in the. Could have been in the in the Atlantic, but the way he makes it sound, especially in later minutes, which is great because you and I had to get ready for every one of these minutes. We've watched all of the footage over and over and over. And so we have a sense of the continuity of the story, but we're only focusing on what's happening in this minute. But I think we get just a little bit of an insight. I don't think he was in the Atlantic. I think he served in the Pacific based on what he's, what he's saying.
1: I think so too.
0: Because his comment was, you know, I saw plenty of flying. All right. I was on a CV. That's a flat top, but I never knew things looked so pretty from up here. Sure is beautiful. So all he had was the reverse. Planes taking off and landing, or planes coming in and trying to attack them and sink them. Never thought of it as something. I mean, when you think about the thing that's trying to kill you, you probably don't think it looks pretty up there.
1: No, probably not. And also, did did we have any flat tops in the uh, in the Atlantic?
0: I, I'm sure we had. Well, uh, you know what? Now I'm questioning myself because I know we had aerial bombardments. Yeah, those were mostly, if not all, land based. Yeah, yeah. I take it back. We may have. All of our flattops may have been in the Pacific Theater.
1: Somebody will correct us if we're wrong, but I'm pretty sure we, they were all in the Pacific. I'm going to look that up real quick because we have to fix that now if we need to.
0: At the beginning of 1942, the U.S. Navy Atlantic Fleet had in-carrier Division Three the three fleet carriers, the Ranger, the Hornet, and the Wasp, and they would escort a carrier called the Long Island. Over the course of the war, Allied carriers became increasingly effective. Aircraft from British and American carriers in the Atlantic Theater were used for both offensive and defensive operations. These included providing air cover during invasions, raiding enemy installations, blockading ports, patrolling for attacking submarines, raiders, and land-based aircraft, protecting trade routes and convoys, and transporting aircraft, troops, and supplies for military and civilian use. So... It could be that he served in the Atlantic. It just feels like based on the description of what went on, and maybe there was a lot more warfare, air warfare that went on in the Atlantic, but Walt, maybe you and I, we know so much of what happened in the war in the Pacific, maybe we are also kind of maybe biased to thinking that that's where they, where it all took place.
1: Yes, and and being that this isn't the end of the war and everybody's
0: coming home,
1: I, I would just... I, I assume that it had to be in the Pacific.
0: Yeah, because I think even like when you think about the Wasp and the Hornet, I mean, weren't those actually reassigned to the Pacific operation? I believe so, because I
1: believe at least the Hornet was at Midway. I think uh, that's got to be right.
0: I mean, they don't have two names of the ships the same, so trust me. (laughs) No, that would be confusing.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: So which ship were you on? I was on the Hornet. Oh, man, Pro Harbor. No, the one on the other side of the world. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> the military may screw up a lot of things, but that ain't one of them. Not, They're going to name things not correctly. Not that bad. No, uh-uh. <laughs> You know what? This makes me, and, and I love this about doing these movies by Minutes, and this suddenly makes me want to learn more about what our aircraft you know, carrier operations were in the early part of the war when we were doing a lot between... Let's say the UK, uh, helping our friends, the British, along those shipping channels, France, down towards Spain, maybe even circling around eventually to North Africa and um, and into into uh, the the Mediterranean. It just feels like it's something I should have known more about concretely than having to kind of look it up yeah. for this episode.
1: Yeah, me too. I, um, I, I definitely want to uh, dig in. Yeah, I'll spend the rest of the night. Looking at that, and then submarine attacks, and
0: um, it does say here historically, and admittedly, they say that uh, the Pacific theater did tend to get a lot more attention from historians as far as naval battles and the use of carriers versus the Atlantic theater. But they said the major, uh, this this article I'm reading, the major tide turning naval battles between carrier fleets were in fact fought in the Pacific, while decisive turning points in the Atlantic theater were tended to be land battles. Um, historian Evan Maudsley contends that the war in the Atlantic was considerably more important for the Allies than the war in the Pacific. Accordingly, the relatively unsung contributions of carriers in the Atlantic, which made these victories possible, may warrant more appreciation in the future. Interesting. Yeah. I'm suddenly like, okay, we, we got we to gotta stop recording so I can go read more <laughs> about all these carrier battles and carrier support battles and and, you know, the missions in the Atlantic because I know for a fact I can't re- I can't think of a single movie. I just thought in D-Day they had carriers to help with the uh the bombardments and things like that. So I made that kind of leap, but I- that may even be wrong. It may be that they were already gone by D-Day. I don't know. I need to learn a little bit more about what was going on with the war in the Atlantic theater.
1: And it was an easy flight from England into uh France and you know all of the D-Day beaches. So you could fly... You didn't need an aircraft carrier at that point, but uh, I know I'm going to have to go dig into it. And uh, Yeah,
0: I think both of us... We better watch just how much we think we know all of a sudden about... What I know. The, what now the, I'm rethinking everything I've ever
1: known about <laughs> naval warfare and... Uh, <laughs>
0: Like, it took me 50 years to realize I really don't know a whole lot.
1: Right. Now I've got to dig in on Amazon and go buy some other 600-page book to sit on my nightstand for the next three months. So I finished the 600-page book I'm reading right now. So,
0: uh, Well, I got you a couple of cool books for Christmas yes, related to the inventions of warfare.
1: Right. And they do not cover naval battles. No, they don't.
0: <laughs> now I know what to get you next year. Right. There you go. So please let me know if you got any of these. Otherwise, I'll get you something next year. Yeah, let me and then I'll borrow it because I want to read it. I know, seriously.
1: We'll we'll both get each other the same book.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, let's get back then to this minute because uh, talking about being on a flat top, and even though we've gone through this whole circle around of the Atlantic versus the Pacific theater, it still feels like, and and the logic makes sense with what you're saying. The war has ended, so chances are, if he was on a ship until coming home or had been hurt on a ship and had to go through rehab before coming home, it most likely at this point would have been the Pacific Theater.
1: Yes, I would think so.
0: Uh, he says, uh, sure is beautiful. So he's he's making that comment sort of as he's looking back, and Fred, I never thought so. So you're getting the duality. The kid who always looked at planes either as an attacking vehicle or something that was always leaving, he was always on the ship, Never thought it'd be beautiful to be up in a plane and now thinks it is. And here comes the reverse. The guy who was in the plane says, I never thought so. This used to be my office. So he's got the flip side. I don't see the beauty because I know what I did from up here. I saw what happened up here. I watched fellow bombers get strafed and blown to Swiss cheese and fall out of the sky. I watched you know, the destruction, whether it was for good or bad in the war effort, I watched my decision to open the Bombay door and release the payload land on enemy targets, causing you know mass destruction.
1: Well, and I'm sure he also saw guys that he you know were on his plane get shot and killed. And
0: um, oh yeah, just because you get strafed doesn't mean everybody survived on the way back home. Some people could have died on that. I mean, we had an entire crew. We talked about all the different places the crew was.
1: Right. So it was a uh, it was a very tough um,
0: tough assignment
1: flying on those planes.
0: Uh, This is another reason why military insignia, medals, badges are so important because obviously Al and Fred have not served together. They know each other by rank, but then Al looks very quickly at his chest and goes, Bombardier, aren't you? And recognizes from the insignia that he's wearing that yes, he was on a flight crew and was specifically assigned to the task of being a bombardier. Yeah. And Fred goes, yep, pointing at that triangular window. That's where the bomb side was. Spent a lot of time on my knees up there, and then, sort of half jokingly, goes praying.
1: <laughs> yeah, that too.
0: He goes, yeah, that too. Yeah. And you got to imagine how much prayer goes on when those flat guns are going off, or all of a sudden you get radio communication: "We've been spotted. Enemy planes incoming." And you know how many movies were based around whether you had a a flight of of aircraft that were helping to protect you. Um, you know, how many times are bombers flying in without any air protection or the air protection gets lost or whatever, and they're not rendezvousing at the right spot, and they're just trying to survive with just fifty caliber machine guns, tail gunners, belly gunners, top gunners, front guns. You're flying basically a, a, a brick in the air. It's not the most maneuverable thing when you're, especially with an 8,000 pounds of, of explosives as your payload.
1: Yeah, and you have a very narrow lane that you've got to keep that thing in, number one, to preserve fuel, and number two, to get that bomb on target. And, you're, and like you said, you're a big flying brick, but you're a big flying brick with a target on it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, because every one of the German aircraft knows that bomb, that, those bombers, and usually they were flying in flights, very few that you would hear about solo missions it was usually about, well, we're going to take out a, a town or we're going to take out a depot or a train area. We're going to try to take out the, the war machine of our enemy. They knew they had to take the bombers out before they got to their destination because it was, it'd was it be great to take them out on the way back, but by that point, they've already done the damage. You're exactly right. And the, the height that they would sometimes fly, um, these uh, B-17s were not pressurized, and so they actually did carry oxygen canisters but when they had to try, try to fly high over the flak guns to get into bombing range, they would all have to have an individual air tank when they would climb to that height to not pass out.
1: That's crazy. The, the stuff these guys went through, uh, I mean, and you think about your job. You talk on the radio and you do some computer stuff. I do a variety of things that are nothing like
0: this. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm pretty much guaranteed coming home safe every day,
1: yeah. i've I've got about a ninety nine point nine 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 percent chance. So. I mean,
0: you might get an angry person you're trying to deliver some paperwork to, and I could get an angry caller who decides to come down and talk to me face to face. But outside of that, sure. and even right. then, we both have law enforcement, and we're both licensed to carry so that's, that's <laughs> right. that's right.
1: And um, yeah, so you you and I basically have the same risk level that everybody else does these guys would climb in a plane and get shot at for a living. I mean, that is really hard to, to put my, my hands around.
0: You know, you mentioned yesterday about that number 25, that if you could reach 25, that was it. Wasn't it because so few people could? Like most, most bombers wouldn't make it that many missions, let alone people on those oh, uh, yeah. Uh, crews.
1: Yeah, no, most of them didn't make it. Uh, the Enola Gay, uh, uh, is that right? The... No, that's not right. Shoot, what was the first plane to make 25? There was a movie made about it.
0: it was it the Memphis Bell? Memphis
1: Bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Enola Gay. The Memphis <laughs> Bell
0: was the first one to make That one, one did drop 25. a bomb. <laughs> yes, it did.
1: It sure did. It, uh, it got their attention, that's for sure. But yeah, the, that was the first one. The Memphis Bell was the first one to make 25 missions where every member of the crew made it.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a good movie. I need to go back and rewatch that. Doesn't that with uh, Matthew Modine? Yeah, I believe so. I remember liking that movie, but I think I've only seen it once or twice.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen it twice. I, I saw it once in the theater and once at home.
0: Yeah, it's the same, same thing. I think theater, and then when it came out on video, renting it. Or, Back in the days of Blockbuster. <laughs> That's
1: right. Back in the olden days. Wow. So,
0: but great movie. Yeah, The the I just confirmed this. The aircraft, the... The Memphis Belle was one of the first United States Army Air Force's B-17 heavy bombers to complete 25 missions.
1: Wow. That's
0: crazy. That is incredible. That, that's worth re-watching now. Just, you know, hey, maybe that's a good recommendation here as we're, as we're making our way toward the end of this minute. If you want to know what it must have been like to be part of a B-17 crew, check out the, uh, the, B, uh, the Memphis Belle. I know there was an older mo- version of, of the movie and the one we saw with Matthew Modine was, was technically a remake. But uh check it out because it would really give you a, a much better sense of what the stress was like, what the what the quarters were like, the I, I you know what? I'm I'm making a note to myself right now. I'm gonna that's that's gonna be close to the next thing I wanna see on my to watch list. Uh yeah. <laughs>
1: I think you've sold me. I think of that and a, and a book thing.
0: on aircraft theater operations, aircraft carrier theater operations in the Atlantic. Apparently those are the two to do's for me after today's episode.
1: Yeah. Good job. Basically every single episode we have more to do afterwards.
0: I didn't think I'd have more history homework. What the hell? I'm yeah, out of school. crazy. <laughs>
1: uh, the more I think about it, I should have been a, a, uh, a history major and gone on to be a historian.
0: Well, you know what? Nothing can stop you from learning history without having... You don't need the degree to do that.
1: This is true, but at least I could do it full time that way.
0: Well, <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, it's like I feel like I do it full time all the time. Um, and now I'm learning how much I don't know. So I do too. And then
1: of course tomorrow on your show we've got a you've got a historian coming in to talk about the Wild West. So oh yeah, my radio show, right? Right, yeah, right? Right? And he'll come on, and I'll find 14 other books I need to read
0: on the Wild West. Well, he'll tell you the first thing he'll say. Look, I'm an expert in my area, but don't ask me anything outside of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> he goes the minute, the minute you swerve that car even a little into the lane, I'm like, eh, somebody else drive. I'm done. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: it's Like Jim, you know had to fix your car. Nope. Well, good you for you. how to him. paint your house. Nope. You know had to unplug. Plug- you know how to put in a toilet or, un- or pl- nope. I I know all about the West and cowboy stuff. I also know a lot about movies and art and painting and and storytelling and poetry. But once you start going to I don't know manual labor, that's somebody else's job. Yeah, I can see that. So it's just he, but he's such a great guy. So I know we we got on a segue there, but uh, let's go ahead and uh, get to the end of the minute because we do have something that's going to set us up for tomorrow. I do want, and I'll let you go first on this, the, the, the dexterity that we're about to see from Homer, because as they're flying and they just get done laughing about praying up in the cockpit, he pulls out a pack of cigarettes and decides, well, I'll offer Homer a cigarette. He's like, cigarette Homer? Obviously, this is a different era, different time. Everybody in World War II, uh, they got packs of smokes in their MREs. Everybody smoked. It didn't matter whether you were on a plane, off a plane, you know, that the days of not only not smoking but not smoking on aircraft would be way you know decades away. Uh, Homer says thanks, and just as you think that the the captain's going to light it, he goes, "Yeah, I've got a match, captain." He reaches into his shirt pocket, pulls out a pack of matches, and then actually opens the matchbook and starts to grab the match and pull it out. And just as he's about to strike it, the minute ends. And so, Walt, I'm going to turn it over to you for a minute because. I know I couldn't believe I had watched what I just watched from somebody with two of these prosthetic hands. This
1: has to be one of the most impressive scenes of any movie ever, <laughs> because thinking about what he's doing is is really just unbelievable, because he's able to manipulate the cigarette out into his mouth, which... Even just that alone is, is amazing. And then to pull a matchbook out, open it, pull out a match, and light it uh, is just incredible. Uh, it, it is beyond my comprehension of how he did that.
0: Well, and we don't get to see it lit just yet, but yeah, it's going to all tie together between today and tomorrow. The The dexterity, the the nimbleness, and I almost think from the director's perspective, and again, I keep thinking from, okay, well, what are we getting message-wise? What might be happening underneath? What's the subtext? Think about what we would have thought as what is the, one of the most simple things you could do if you had your hands. Open a matchbook and strike a match. But then suddenly doesn't that become one of the most impossible things to conceive of doing without hands? I, I'm, I'm astounded. And I'm wondering, are we supposed to get from this just a little bit that you and I watching it, like I'm in the position of like Captain Derry. I'm in the position of maybe even the audience. I'm thinking, oh my God, that's impossible. And yet as maybe kind of, hey, everyone has the ability to overcome challenges if they, if they just stick to it. And we're sort of now seeing, wow, look at how dexterous, look at how he was able to accept the loss of his hands and continue and continue life.
1: And I've been around some people who've had horrifying accidents and and bad things happen to them, and I'm always amazed at the attitudes that they have.
0: Yeah. I'm going to be blown away even more tomorrow, and then there's going to be a great superstition uh, that they have, that, and you realize, well, where did that come from? And it's interesting that the sailor is going to tell the story, but... Maybe it works on ships as well when you're on shore leave. We'll talk about it tomorrow about uh, lighting cigarettes for your fellow friends. Uh, So that's where we end. We end with him just about ready to strike the match. We're going to continue to talk about the dexterity and nimbleness of Homer Parrish. Before we wrap this up, was there anything more about the scene, about going home? Anything that you wanted to talk about? Anything in your notes that we missed?
1: No, I think we've covered it. We covered everything in my notes, and I think we've covered everything in Jim's notes. <laughs> I
0: hope so. That's really the, all that matters, is I just look for affirmation. I was like, Jim, did we do good? Huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Jim's like the bulldog. Shut up. <laughs> 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 I'm like the chihuahua. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's Jim. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, if uh, before we get to the end of this, let's go ahead and remind everybody quickly uh, where they can learn a little bit more about the Wilder Ride podcast.
1: Well, if you want to learn a little bit more about the Wilder Ride podcast, you can find us on any podcatcher—the Apple Podcatcher, Stitcher—we're uh, all over the place out there. Uh, you can also find some of our extra episodes over on Patreon.com/slash/The Wilder Ride, and we've covered movies that range from Poltergeist to Christmas Vacation, uh, The Big Lebowski and several others that are all usually behind our paywall.
0: Oh, let's and really encourage them to check out The Princess Bride, where we've got the princess yes. wives joining us.
1: That's right. One of us, who will remain nameless but was me, was crazy <laughs> enough to think we should bring our wives in the studio and go through a movie. So that was a blast. We went through The Princess Bride, which is a favorite of all four of us, and uh, really had a good time doing that. So check that out. Um, and uh, None of us, I, I don't think, got beaten or yelled at or anything well we're
0: both still here and we're both still married so that's a good sign
1: that's a good sign (laughs) so uh yeah but check that out and then if uh you know while you're there look at some of the other stuff that we've done we uh have some great stuff there on patreon and all that right now is free because of covid so by the time you uh you listen you may have to throw us a dollar or two to be able to listen but it's it's definitely worth it some great movies that we talk about
0: All right. To learn more about this podcast and all of the different teams that are going to be coming together to create the entire season, check out TheBestMinutes.com. You can follow on Twitter, TheBestMinutes, as Twitter. Or if you want to get involved, maybe even uh, more than Twitter, maybe you want to be part of the Listener's Lounge or our Listener's Cafe for this. We call it Butch's Place, the best years of our lives, Listener's Cafe on Facebook. You do need to apply. It's a private group, but uh, easy to get in. All it takes is a love of this movie or of the podcast genre or of talking about movies and if you want to get in there and just learn a little bit more about us ask questions why did we do this or that or you hear us you hear us ask questions and like I don't know what that is and thinking oh yeah I know exactly what that is Uh, that'd be a great place to intermingle with everybody that's going to be involved in this season of the podcast And of course, if you are looking to recommend where people can get it, tell them it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and many others. And more than anything, if you've enjoyed listening, take a second to rate and review and then hit the share button. Share that episode from whatever podcast you're listening on right now. Share the episode and say, hey, this is kind of cool. We're breaking the movie down one minute at a time and learning a little bit about history, learning what some of our guests don't know about history, all the kind of good stuff that's involved with a show like this. All right, till tomorrow, come on back. Wednesday, a Hope day edition of the Best Minutes podcast. We'll have a brand new minute. We'll continue this and talk a little bit more about the dexterity of this actor and still in the cockpit, or at least in the nose, of a B-17 flying fortress right here on the Best Minutes podcast. I wonder if we
1: should be asking for a cut at Amazon of all the history books they sell after our podcast is released no
0: it's even worse i have to explain to my wife well i'm not having to do anything because it's not my show it's somebody else's now she's like well why is it costing us i'm like eh, <laughs> right because walt and i realize we're stupid and we don't know yeah. things <laughs> well
1: that is that is very true i, I think she already knows that.
0: hey joe you better hurry up on there because she's taking off soon
1: right thanks hey. come on taylor